Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will be discussing Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. As always, we do invite you to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. If you use that link in the show notes to sign up, we will send you a free copy of our new ebook, which is Peter Lightheart's Notes on the Book of Isaiah, Part 1. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts 15. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James Bijan, Alistair Roberts, and Brian Motes. We are in the middle of a series of podcasts on the book of Acts, uh, and we have covered the first 14 chapters, looking at the ministry and mission of the church as it moves from Pentecost in, and, uh, in Jerusalem, out from Jerusalem to Samaria, and then out from Samaria to Antioch, which has become the base of the uh, mission of the Gentiles, the base of Paul's uh, first missionary journey, uh, which we looked at in the last couple of episodes. Uh, We come this week to chapter 15, which is uh, kind of the heart of the book, structurally speaking. It's right at the middle of Acts, and uh, it's dealing with a a crucial issue in the early church, an issue that occupies much much of the New Testament the uh, reception of Gentiles into the church, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the, into the church, the responsibility or obligation that Gentiles have to keep matters of the law, especially circumcision and food laws and other matters of purity, uh, those kinds of concerns. Uh, they're uh, at the heart of chapter 15 and the incident of chapter, uh, the, the discussion of chapter 15, and they haunt much of the New Testament's epistolary literature. Paul is constantly returning to this issue. It's in the background of books that don't make it overt, but uh, harmonizing together Jews and Gentiles in one new man is uh, is a central theme of, of Acts. It's a central theme of Paul's letters and a central reality of the New Testament period. That's part of what the gospel is intended to do. As an initial stage of gathering together people from every tribe and tongue and nation, This uh, the Jews and Gentiles of the Greco-Roman world are being uh, knit together. Uh, and the, the conflict over this issue provokes a council and assembly and ecclesia of apostles and elders in Jerusalem that decides this issue. This, this chapter is a, a crucial chapter, and it's a chapter that's received a lot of attention over the years, centuries, and also has been a, a site of a, a good bit of controversy about what exactly the issues are uh, what the solution is, and where the apostles and elders get the solution that they propose and uh, and offer to the churches. Uh, what is the rationale behind that? Uh, and also trying to trying to uh, reconcile the account in Acts with what Paul says in his letters, and particularly in Galatians, about his visits to Jerusalem and his own dealings with this question. So uh, we're entering on controverted territory. And we decided ahead of time before the podcast began that we were not going to try to sort out things before uh, we recorded. And so we, you, you get to hear perhaps live controversy on the Theopolis podcast. So, we're not uh, in the same room, so no go. one will get stoned to death. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's that's the one piece of good news that we have here. Maybe a uh, non-controversial opener could be just to highlight the issue at, at stake here. Um, the converts that we've read about so far from the Gentiles, they're very clearly seen not as forming some new separate non-Israelite uh, body. Um, they're very clearly seen as members of Israel, and th- therefore it's um, – suggested that they should be circumcised so that i take it is the foundation of the whole um the whole issue these people are are being converted and are being sort of seen therefore as coming into israel and so the issue of circumcision is just naturally um rearing its head right they're being grafted into a pre-existing community they're being grafted into the tree as paul describes it in in romans yeah do we need to talk much about whether um, this is the same um, visit which is referred to in Galatians 2? I mean, I I suspect it's not, but I don't know if much hangs on it in terms of our, our actual interpretation of what's decided in Acts 15. My impression is that the visit that he refers to when he speaks to the um, pillars of the church is back in chapter 12, um, whereas here we have the... Um, the conflict in Antioch beforehand is the conflict that he refers to with Peter at that point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that, um, Alistair. Unfortunately, uh, this is one point where we're not going to have a knockdown drag out. Um, I think part of the, part of the reason is um, if this is the uh, – well, this is, this is Paul's third visit to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Paul insists that he's only made two visits to Jerusalem – in Galatians 2, and that's that's not a side issue for Paul. Paul takes an oath that he's telling the truth. Yeah. And then if he uh, neglects to mention a visit to Jerusalem, uh, that's significant. It's also significant because the whole point is that he's not dependent on the Jerusalem church for the reception of the gospel. He's received it from Jesus directly. And so if he uh, if he skims over a particular visit, uh, then that's a, that's a huge hole in his defense of his apostleship. So I think... Um, that by itself, uh, and, and other things too, that um, there are things about the visit that, that's mentioned in uh, Acts 11 and 12 that, that link up with what Paul says in, in Galatians 2 better than this does. Right. I mean, the Galatians 2 is, um, he goes up privately, doesn't he, and by revelation, and it feels like he's the instigator there. But here, I mean, it's initiated by the the Jews' arrival, isn't it? It's, it's public. Um, he, it's not a revelation that, that triggers the thing and and... Yeah, it just sounds like a different event, I would say. Yeah, right, right. I think you're right, uh, James, that the issue, obviously, is circumcision and uh, the, the it's raised because Gentiles are being brought into a pre-existing Israelite community. But, but, but the question is what I have would be, what, what is the force of something like uh, the claim that uh, Jews, uh, or Gentiles rather, uh, need to be circumcised is the implication that they need to be yeah, verse one says they can't they they need to be circumcised according to the custom of moses or they cannot be saved hmm. so that puzzles me because jews would have believed that gentiles could be saved by being gentile god fears i would think in what sense in what sense are they meaning that is that a distortion of what a kind of biblical judaism would say but this is coming from men from Judea who are teaching among the brethren, which seem to be men from Judea who have a connection with the church if they're not actually members of the church. And yet they're insisting on circumcision for salvation, which doesn't seem to be 
that doesn't seem to be the Jewish view. So where, where, where does that, that particular uh, way of stating it come from? Oh, Peter, I think it's a distortion. That was one of your options. Because in verse 5, it says, uh, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up. So this seems to be a Pharisaical distortion of, um, of Israelite doctrine, is Israelite uh, practice, and how they treat the Gentiles. And apparently, it's the, the Pharisaical view is bleeding over now into the church community. Perhaps some of them viewed it according to the end of the times of ignorance, that now the times of ignorance have ended, everyone needs to accept this new way of Judaism, um, that this is something that comes with the new age. It's not something that's always been the case, but now those times have ended, the gospel is going to the Gentiles, they need to become part of Israel. Ah, interesting. An, an apocalyptic kind of Judaizing. The apocalyptic or eschatological thrust would seem to indicate, you know, circumcision is nothing. Uh, you know, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything, as Paul says in later. But um, this that's interesting. This could be a, a kind of Judaizing that's based on the newness of this community and the newness of the time. Right, which would, I mean, I guess we'll get there sooner or later, but that would make the um, uh, rebuttal of it by Simon when he quotes from Amos very fitting because that would be a, um, a rebuttal on the basis of um, a correct eschatology, uh, I guess, and, and one that sees the final state still having Gentiles saved as Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So this, this must have just been a development over time, because in Galatians 2, um, even the so-called pillars of the church gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and and allowed them or uh, encouraged them to go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Uh, so eventually, at some point, someone must have recognized, hey, this is this is not working. If, if Paul and Barnabas go to Gentiles... Um, the Gentiles have to be circumcised too. So um, you, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, for mm-hmm. for them to allow initially them to go and then to change and decide, well, now uh, w- what we meant was that the Gentiles would become part of the circumcised community. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Most of the Gentiles that we saw converted early on, as we've come to elsewhere, were within the orbit of the synagogue community, it seems. And now it seems to be going that bit further out. And so maybe this comes with a renewed force on account of that fact. Whereas previously, it would be, um, it wouldn't be too much of a trouble to circumcise these Gentiles to make them part of synagogues that they'd been attached to in some sense or other. Um, now a greater demand is being made. These are people who have just a pagan background. They're not people with any synagogue connections. And as a result, there's a greater challenge on this particular point. Right. That, that seems to make sense. I mean, the God-fearers, I guess, in whatever way it had been worked out, were accepted um, in synagogue circles. It, it was obviously acceptable for them to enter and participate in, in some way. Um, and so, yeah, it would make sense that it was the conversion of more overtly pagan Gentiles that has that has led to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, circumcision is one of the issues here, but verse 5 indicates that uh, there's something more. Uh, Jeff has already cited this, uh, those who are coming from the sect of the Pharisees. So they think it's necessary to circumcise and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Uh, and that uh, I'm, I'm assuming that that would link up with what's said in verse 1, that that is the path of salvation in order to be saved, in order to be reconciled to God. I, I'm assuming that's what being saved would mean here. Uh, you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law of Moses. But uh, how extensively are would you understand that? What, what exactly is at stake in that observance of the law of Moses? What kinds of things are they requiring of the Gentiles? I mean, I guess it's, it's hard to tell, isn't it, just from the um, context of the chapter alone. I mean, what they ultimately agree on in verse um, 29 and uh, 28 and 29 is is – We'll get to it later, but um, to abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols, um, from blood, from what's been strangled, from, from sexual immorality. Um, so that, whatever that, that is, that seems to be a streamlined version of what was originally being proposed. So uh, that is um, introduced by saying we should lay on the Gentiles no greater burden than than these requirements. So. At the very least, um, what's initially proposed in verse five w- would be would have been a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, can we can we uh, kind of import Galatians two again here, uh, where Paul rebukes Peter for refusing table fellowship with Gentiles? Would that be based simply on circumcision, a lack of circumcision, or would it be based on a lack of observance of purity rules and tithing rules? Uh, Peter sharing with. Um, with Gentiles, sharing a meal with Gentiles might put him in uh, the, the position of eating unclean foods or foods that had not been tithed on or being in close contact with somebody who had not gone through the proper purification procedures. Table fellowship, uh, I mean, so can we import that into this demand that uh, observe the law of Moses as it pertains to, if we're, going to have a co- if we're have a, going to have a common table of Jews and Gentiles in the church, then everybody has to have the same degree of purity. Or is that importing too much into the yeah. into the demand? No, I don't think so. Not just not just circumcision, but the whole ball the whole ball of wax. Everything. Look at what Peter says down in verse ten when um, he says, "Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear?" Um, that that that's not just circumcision. That's everything. Uh, and it, it's, it's interesting that Peter has come to the conclusion that the, um, uh, the old law, the elementary principles were, were, uh, these, uh, uh there was this yoke, uh, for a time necessary. And obviously, according to Galatians four, I think it was about training them as children. Uh, and yet now, uh, that yoke, uh, cannot be put on the Gentiles because it's uh, it doesn't make sense um, that we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. In other words, these laws were never about salvation, primarily about you know uh, attaining the grace of God or drawing down God's love by obeying them. Uh, they were always about something else, and uh, now that something else is uh, in the past. We should probably be alert also to some of the political issues here. Um, as Paul mentions in Galatians, 
Peter's actions were not driven by a conviction about the arguments of the circumcision party. He was acting hypocritically. He did not actually believe this. Um, rather, he feared the, that particular party. And so this is, among other things, this is a struggle for who is going to set the path for the church. Is it going to be a path that's set hypocritically out of fear of men and a particular party that hold an undue degree of influence? Or is this going to be a church that is committed to the way of Christ, even if that might lead to um, putting the, nose, the noses of certain powerful and influential people out of joint? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, good point. Hey, Jeff, I wanted to go back to your quotation of Peter. Um, we keep jumping ahead. I, I think James started it. He started jumping ahead. Um, <laughs> but the, you jumped ahead to the quotation from Peter, so I'll go. I'll jump back with you. Um, so, what, how did how did Peter come to that conviction? I mean, uh, has he never sung or read Psalm one nineteen? Uh, doesn't he know that the law of the Lord is perfect? It it liberates. It's a liberating law. How does he come to the conclusion that it's a burden that's too much for us to bear? Is he an antinomian? Has he become an antinomian? Uh, do you, are, are you suggesting that it's possible that this yoke is actually the pharisaical oral law tradition? Uh, is I that what he's talking about? I, I wasn't particularly uh, proposing anything. I'm just I'm questioning what, what he, what, uh, what's going on there. That doesn't seem to be – that's not the same – portrayal of the law that you find in some parts of the uh, of the Hebrew scriptures is not the same portrayal of the law you would find among contemporary Jews so yeah what is what is it that he's uh, it, maybe he's talking about something more than just uh, the law as God gave it but uh, how do, how does he come to that conclusion in any case I mean the, you could see I think it's fairly obvious you could say that the the fathers couldn't bear the yoke because they they obviously didn't <laughs> they didn't keep the law so it was too too heavy for them to bear is that is that the kind of thing he's referring to one thing we can say is that it's consistent with how paul has spoken about the law in acts 13 so when he preaches jesus he says by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So there is the same view of the um, insufficiency, at, at least, of the, of the law uh, promoted by Paul. Mm-hmm. So we might we might uh, throw in Hebrews into the mix and say uh, the law is, think about the, the way that Hebrews characterizes the Day of Atonement rituals. The Day of Atonement is clearly not uh, cleansing sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And the, the evidence for that is the fact that it keeps happening every year. And the sacrifices have to keep happening uh, daily and then uh, on certain occasions when you sin. So there's there's not yet been a final sacrifice. So mm-hmm. uh, that, I mean, that, that at least fits with, with, with the kind of thing Paul is saying in Acts 13, that there are things from which the law cannot liberate. Uh, and perhaps you could say that that's, you know, Peter is seeing the law as a yoke in that sense that it's it needs to, it needs to be done, but it doesn't actually provide the the liberation from sin that uh, that you're seeking. It isn't this also an eschatological realization? Uh, once Jesus comes and yeah. we, the Israel has this realization that He is the end, the goal, the telos of the law. Mm-hmm. It's maybe it's it doesn't mean that uh, the psalmist can't delight in the law of God and uh, a- a- at the time. 
but once once Jesus comes, then there's a whole new perspective on it, similar to you know what happens in Galatians three, when Paul talks about you know until the faithful one came, we were held captive, uh, uh, imprisoned, basically uh, by the law. Our, our the law was our guardian, was our tutor, our manager until the date set by God, until Jesus comes. So I guess in my mind, it's always just been an eschatological realization. Doesn't mean the law is not good, but of course, we as Christians look at the law and especially the details that might have been considered to be a yoke too heavy for the fathers to bear, to be uh, typological, to point Mm -hmm. forward to Jesus. um, And that's how we are able to uh, appreciate it. I think one thing Mm -hmm. to bear in mind about the law, it's not just that it's incomplete, um, there's just the onerous character of keeping the law, how costly it would be to make all the sacrifices, to do all of the pilgrimages and all these other things that would be required of you to maintain um, cleanness. Um, all of these different requirements, if you're going to be truly and completely observant, would be very costly and it would take a lot of time and effort and inconvenience. And in that respect, um, there's something about the law that binds us to the flesh and its death and constantly brings that fact to light in a frustrating and an onerous way. There's no way that it feels like a burdensome yoke um, by the very nature of performing this week after week after week. And I think that's something that... um, Paul gets out. This is a point that um, James Jordan has made on occasions, just the amount that it would take to complete all of these requirements and how difficult that would be for many people. And is it possible also, Alistair, is it possible that the apostles also knew that the law and the keeping of the law was tied to the temple and 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 Jerusalem and all the rest and the kingdom of God is coming, uh, and Jerusalem is going to be judged. Jesus told us that. And so that also, that aspect of the law is um, is not even going to be, a- no one's going to be able even to, uh, to obey the law anymore, which of course is why Judaism after AD 70 uh, completely revises everything uh, because th- there's no longer temple sacrifices or even a holy city. Yeah, well, it, 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 it comes, Judaism comes partway into the New Covenant, doesn't it? Um, acknowledging, mm-hmm. adjusting in the light of the loss of the temple. Yeah. I think that all that is undoubtedly true. You know, that Israel, as it w- was at that time, didn't have the flexibility to take in this, this huge mass of, of Gentiles. But at the, at the same time, the objection in, in verse 10 by Peter is, um, you know, why would you want to place a yoke on them, them, not, you know, which they will ultimately have to outgrow, but which neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. So it does feel like he's making more of a point um, intrinsic to the nature of the law rather than um, to how apt it's going to be going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's uh, it's worth uh, taking a moment to think about the, the procedure that they use in order to, uh, in order to uh, resolve this dispute. They gather together uh, as an ecclesia. Uh, that's the word that's used a couple of times here. Uh, elders and apostles. Uh, there are a series of 
testimonies, as it were. Peter testifies again to uh, what the Lord did through uh, uh, in the in the in the uh, case of Cornelius and the way that the Lord showed no partiality in giving His Spirit. That's uh, testimony to the Lord's impartiality and therefore to the the demand for impartiality on the part of Jews receiving Gentiles. Uh, Paul and Barnabas report on their Gentile mission, and then James uh, comes to uh, discuss, uh, give a scriptural foundation for what's going on. But there's this, uh, and uh, that's all intertwined with um, not a little dissension, as uh, as uh, Luke says somewhere. There's a there's a there's a contentious debate going on, but there's a variety of different kinds of testimony that are offered here. Some of it is more experiential. Um, this is what the Lord did, and we need to reckon with it. Uh, and then, of course, James is 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 citing scripture. Well, one of the things that's uh, that's interesting about this is just the the fact that you have the church functioning as a kind of this is a point that Ben Witherington makes in his commentary. Uh, the church kind of functioning as a it is functioning as a separate entity within the Roman Empire. Uh, it's making its own decision. It's resolving its own dispute. There's no appeal to Caesar involved here or to any Roman governor. Uh, it's a it's a self sustaining community, but at the same time, it's adopting certain practices that make it look like it's understand. It'd be understandable to a Roman observer how this is being done. Uh, how are you resolving the dispute? Well, we're we're gathering together all the leaders and we're having this uh, the citizen assembly, as it were, in order to work through these issues the way you would in any Greco Roman city. And then we're distributing this decision that we make by uh, this with this delegation to the various churches. And it's almost like a, they're shadowing the arrangements and the practices of the Roman Empire. This is the way the Roman Empire would resolve uh, a dispute, uh, which I think is theologically correct. That this is a this is a kind of counter empire within the empire, the empire of Jesus. Uh, but it, it's int- the, the resemblance to the procedures of the Roman Empire are intriguing. Reading this in the light of what Paul says in Galatians, um, it can help us to maybe get at some of the motives that will be driving the debate and the considerations. He talks about the concerns of people who want to make a good showing in the flesh and the fact that if he was preaching circumcision, he would not be persecuted persecuted as he is. And yet, in not preaching circumcision, it's precisely there that the emphasis upon the cross of Christ can come to the fore. And it's the cross of the Christ, of Christ that is the true scandal of the faith, which causes all these tensions with the Jews and the Gentiles that we've been seeing in the past few chapters. And what the Judaizers seem to be doing is creating a sort of respectability religion where they're converting Gentiles, but then they're converting them to Jewish practice Commitment to Jesus the Messiah is part of this, but they're just another sect of Judaism. There's nothing that would challenge at the heart the rulers and authorities. They've been persecuted in Jerusalem. They've suffered all these different problems in um, different parts of the world. And now they just want to settle down with their Jewish neighbors and find some way to be at peace with them. And this is a point which calls for courage, among other things, and also for clarity on what is the true mm-hmm. point of the gospel and not to paper over that with a neat facade of observant Judaism. Yeah, and the persecution could, could come not just from Jews. Uh, this would this would uh, smooth out relations with Jews, but also it would smooth out relations with the empire, which uh, had given uh, more or less given Jews legal 
uh, a legal standing to exist, uh, a legal standing that the uh, the church doesn't have. And so, um, you know, associating with Jews is a is a is a uh, you know a, a respectability religion, yeah, it's, and and a, and a safe one in regard to the empire. This may, uh, in some ways, obviously mimic the Roman way of resolving issues, but there's no emperor. So restore the Republic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is, there's Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But it related to that too is uh, this is the, this is Peter's last appearance in the book of Acts. This is, these are Peter's last words, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think that's accurate. And, and yet Peter starts off the discussion, the debate, but he doesn't end it. Um, it's, it's ended by a, um, well, verse 19, or, or I'm sorry, verse uh, 22, the disciples, the elders, the whole church. Um, and all through here, you see this, um, I don't want to call it a democracy. It is kind of a republic, if you will. Uh, but there's, there's no autocephalous kind of, um, monarch here that decides things. Peter, I mean, if Peter was the first pope, if we put it this way, then his word would have, would have stood and just, uh, that was it. But actually, James, who is not uh, even a, even an apostle, is one of the ones who seals the deal here. So I get just there's just some interesting social dynamics when we think about ecclesiastical yeah. kind of uh, procedure here, um, and of course as Presbyterians we are always coming back to this as the first kind of general assembly or presbytery meeting, um, and I think there's some good wisdom to to draw from this. Yeah, well I think that all this time all this time we've had a, a fairly peaceable discussion. Jeff, and then you go off attacking monarchy. <laughs> so I think there, there, there goes any hope for a for a, a civil discussion from here on in. Uh, well, monarchy in the church. Ah. <laughs> it is important to notice that it is James that casts the deciding um, or makes the deciding judgment. And in Galatians, we're told that the Judaizers came up from James um, and maybe this absolves him of the suggestion that there is um, an authorization of their teaching um, coming from James rather the the gospel is something on which all of the pillars of the church are in agreement at this point Mm -hmm. how how do you take um, uh, James's uh, defense from scripture Uh, James B. John um, mentioned this earlier, uh, the, the uh, uh, reference to the Gentiles who are coming in as Gentiles uh, and also the eschatological dimensions of it. Uh, one, one thought I have, and then I'll uh, uh, toss it back to you all. Um, uh, Jeff has made the point various times through our studies uh, together that uh, uh, when we move out of Jerusalem, we're moving out of a priestly phase of the book of Acts into a more royal phase of the book of Acts. It's following the priest, king, prophet kind of sequence that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, and one of the features of that, I think, is the way that Paul Paul focuses on Davidic, uh, a Davidic gospel, Davidic-centered gospel. And we talked about this briefly when we considered Paul's first sermon in, in Acts 13 and compared it to Stephen's sermon. 
Stephen talks, the whole central section of Stephen's sermon is about uh, Moses. Uh, but when di- when when uh, uh, Paul preaches, he's focused on a on uh, on uh, a Davidic gospel. This is the gospel of kingship, uh, and that's one at least one dimension of what James is getting at here. It's a it's a restoration, a rebuilding, a raising up, a resurrection almost of the of the tent or tabernacle of David, uh, which puts it in that uh, in that royal context, uh, which fits with this phase of the Book of Acts. And the tabernacle of David was. It's not just the tabernacle. Um, it was the tent that was set up in Second Samuel chapter 6 for the Ark of the Covenant as it was brought into the royal city, whereas the tabernacle and the sacrificial worship associated with it was out in Gibeon at the time. And so this suggests a passing beyond sacrificial worship, but the worship of the people mm. of God is defined as you've written in your book From Silence to Song by songs. It's characterized by the bringing together of Jews and Gentiles, as we see in the house of Abinadab, Obed-Edom, and um, Obed-Edom is Gittite. And it seems that that stage is being restored, um, this anticipation of Jews and Gentiles joining together in a worship characterized primarily by music and song, not so much by sacrifice of animals. And yet, this is the prophetic phase in the book of Acts. Oops. Um, and I wonder whether... <laughs> he just has Amos, it in for monarchy. It's terrible. <laughs> I, I wonder whether Amos 9 is actually a prophecy, first of all, near fulfillment about the, um, the post-exilic period. Um, and now it's being fulfilled in the secondary sense and uh, in this this time where uh, the Gentiles, of course, in the post-exilic period, the Gentiles, the Jews go out and the tent is expanded to include, you know, Babylonians and, and, and all sorts of people. And now the tent is being further expanded um, because Yahweh has returned uh, in a big way through Jesus. And now, um, the remnant of mankind, Gentiles, are it's it's going out in an even greater way. Uh, uh, just that just occurred to me. I'm not sure that's right, but it makes sense at least to me. Yeah. So, Jeff, what, where are you making the distinction between a, the royal and the prophetic phase of Acts? Where does it? Where do you see that? Oh, in, in thirteen, it once uh, once uh, Barnabas and Saul are sent off. Oh. Then you start. Uh, Having you're dealing with the Gentiles, you're dealing with the Oikumene, right. you're uh, uh, and all that. Yes, because because you're, you're out, of, you're out of the land, out of the land, out of the land, and into into the yeah, right. Okay, I would I withdraw my comment then. I, I think it's I think there's still something <laughs> something Davidic going on, uh, even if it doesn't sure. fit Jeff's scheme. It's there's something <laughs> Davidic going on in Paul's ministry. <laughs> But there's something there's something Davidic going on, even in post-exilic. Sure, of course you still have a, a a Davidic kind of perspective on things because David is such an important figure typologically. Now, bro- brothers, listen to me. If I may quote from my namesake in um, in in verse thirteen, <laughs> <laughs> um, as, as I give my judgment, um, it. it 
it seems to me that Old Testament prophets very often picture their um, end state in terms of the problems they've identified in their prophecies. So, for instance, Ezekiel um, particularly criticizes the worship and the idolatry in and around the temple, and then his end state is this perfect glorified temple. And Daniel, for instance, is interested in um, unjust and animal-like kings, and then he portrays his end state in the Son of Man ruling and, and the nations obedient and, and so forth. And Amos then um, uh, does the same. You know, he has a particular concern for um, social exclusion and social injustice and, and these sort of multiple uh, classes within God's um, uh, economy, and, and then uh, looks at his end state as, as this um, uh, unified thing, the re restoration of a, a Davidic um, monarchy where the, the nations come. And, and it seems a very appropriate thing then to um, bring up here as what is um, under threat of happening, I guess, is, is this um, this social exclusion, really, within the, the church, um, a, a, a two-layered church with Gentiles and, and Jews differently, um, differently accommodated. And yeah, as I say, it seems that Amos is a, is a really sort of powerful uh, prophecy mm -hmm. quote in that context. Mm -hmm. The uh, the conclusion, the judgment that uh, that James uh, James the uh, leader of the Jerusalem Church, not James B. John, that James comes to is uh, that uh, the Gentiles should abstain from things contaminated by idols, fornication, things strangled, and from blood. Those four uh, those four restrictions, which are repeated in verses uh, twenty and twenty nine, this time uh, with the backing of. Uh, the claim that this is uh, this seemed good to the spirit and to us, but their spirit guided judgment is that this is the burden that they will lay on Gentiles, uh, and this is one of the controverted parts of the parts of the chapter. Is uh, the question is where where does this come from? Uh, what uh, what what uh, grounds these particular restrictions and prohibitions, and how is it related? Uh, as one dimension of that question, how is it related to verse 21, where James says that Moses has in every city those who preach him? He's read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Uh, how, how are these Gentile restrictions related to the presence of Jews in the cities where these believing Gentiles are going to be? Uh, is, that, is that part of, the, um, is that part of the, the rationale for these particular restrictions? And would that mean then that these restrictions are applicable to Gentiles in the first century when they are living in cities that have large numbers of Jews uh, that have, and they might be uh, in some kind of loose attachment to these Jews uh, who, uh, who uh, have, have Moses in the synagogue every Sunday. So uh, what, what are the, what are your thoughts about the, the rationale for the, uh, for that judgment? Where do those things come from? This really requires a longer discussion, doesn't it, Peter? I mean, we're at the end of our time. Um, we should probably put this off till next time. Well, how long do you think it'll take? <laughs> Three or four hours. <laughs> I, I, I can keep going for another 10 minutes or so if we think we can uh, make progress. That's fine. That's okay. good. Yeah, let's give it, let's give it a shot. Go ahead, Jeff. You have something to say about it. I can well, talk. well, I don't. 
so the question is, is are these four uh, prohibitions um, practical, temporary types of um, judgments so that uh, Gentiles and Jews can kind of get along? Or is there something more basic about these four these four commandments, abstaining from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from blood. I mean, do these Are these ongoing, uh, basic, uh, foundational kinds of, um, uh, you know, uh, rules for Gentiles, for everybody, or is this just a stopgap measure to keep everybody happy for a while. Right. And I think the, 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 um, probably the sticking point, the, the, the place where we are inclined to say these have permanent, some kind of permanence is the reference to fornication. I mean, idolatry, things contaminated by idolatry, that becomes a complicated issue when Paul discusses it in the Corinthian correspondence. But uh, refraining from things strangled and from blood are dietary restrictions that uh, we we tend to have a looser tend to regard more more as more loose restrictions. But the the reference to fornication suggests that this is a this has some kind of permanence to it. Both of the issues of fornication and um, meat polluted by idols, as you say, are prominent in Paul's Corinthian correspondence. And there he seems to give very different rationales for the two of them. When he talks about sexual immorality in chapters 5 to 6 in particular, it's very clear there are more categorical judgments being made, that this is something that is, um, oh, we've been bought at a, cr- a price by Christ, we must glorify God in our bodies, we must be those who eschew every form of sexual immorality. If there's something like this that occurs in the church, that person must be dealt with. Um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. All of these teachings are very clear and pronounced there. However, when he turns to the issue of idol meat, he deals with it in a quite... Um, he, he moves around the issue from a number of perspectives. So first of all, he presents the way in which... Um, it's a weaker, stronger brother paradigm at certain points. He talks about giving up rights for the sake of others, not exerting one's rights, and then moves back to a discussion of the Jews in the wilderness and the way that they flirted with idolatry and what that led to. And he seems to give two different sorts of answers. So on the one hand, there is a categorical no to um idol meat that's eaten as part of an idol sacrifice or something like that. You're eating at the table of demons, and that is communion with demons. On the other hand, the meat that's maybe associated with idols that has ended up in the meat market, you can eat without asking questions. But if it's something that harms someone else's conscience, then you take account of them and don't exert your rights. And so it, it seems that these issues are functioning on a number of different levels. We're not, um, not all of them have the same categorical force as the um, requirement not to be involved in sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. One, one possibility that's been uh, offered by commentators is that these are linked to 
regulations that uh, applied to Gentiles in the Old Testament, the Gentiles who were living in the land. Leviticus 17 and 18 are usually cited as containing four rules that have to do with, uh, that apply to both the uh, native and the stranger in the land. They, they correspond to the four restrictions here. The objection to that is that uh, those are rules for Gentiles who are living in the land of Israel, and therefore uh, doesn't seem like it would apply outside of that context. And yet the apostles seem to be applying it uh, more generally. I, and that's where I, I think verse 21 may be relevant. Perhaps the logic is Jews are now scattered all over the Oikumene, and therefore, in some sense, the whole Oikumene is land that belongs, that in which Jews reside. And Gentiles, all the Gentiles are being regarded as strangers in that land uh, and therefore function or, or keep these regulations. So you can, you can construct a rationale based on the, on, the, on the diaspora of Jews around the Oikumene that these would, the, these would be an application of those Levitical passages in this now, now extended kind of land that Israel occupies. I guess an alternative way of explaining the same uh, data could be just to say that Paul is clear that if to um, eat food polluted by idols is going to damage someone else's conscience, that shouldn't be done. And then you could take the judgment here by James that in such cities as he has in mind where there are many dias- diasporized Jews uh, present, that that will uh, be damaging to their conscience. Mm-hmm. When I talk with people who read this uh, just as a pastor, I mean, the question just comes up, well, why, of all the things to put in a letter to the Gentiles about how they should behave, why put these four prohibitions? Mm-hmm. Why didn't the council say, you know, like, no, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. No, you don't need to offer animal sacrifices. You don't need to go to required Jewish feast. Uh, you can eat pork and have a shrimp cocktail with your wine as an appetizer or whatever. Um, you're saved by the grace of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus alone. Why Why didn't they put, you know, something like, you know, to live a life of gratitude, the Gentiles should pray, gather for worship, love their neighbor, don't steal, don't bear false witness. And I, Christians are baffled by this. Um, and, and so I think that's why sometimes I think these prohibitions are just temporary. Um, it, it appears to me, though, that it's almost surely the case that these are the matters that are in dispute. Mm-hmm. They agreed on these other things. These other things were preached and taught and, and, and embraced by everybody. Um, but these are the matters that are in dispute. And, and if, if this follows the order of Genesis 17 and 18, and it actually does, Leviticus. Leviticus. then the sexual immorality here may refer to the laws of can- consanguinity. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just to general um, sexual immorality, but to what's referred to in, in Leviticus 18. And you're the, you're the one who's done the work on Leviticus 17 and 18, Peter. Um, James Jordan kind of grounds that, grounds this in that, mm-hmm. and says that these prohibitions are permanent um, and um, and not just temporary stopgap measures. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the one that many people wonder about is the um consuming of blood and the Mm -hmm. things strangled presumably a form of slaughter that is designed to retain the blood and that seems to on the one hand it's not simply an accommodation to jews nor on the other hand 
does it seem to um, be treated as a permanent command by other people? But yet it has a reference, it would seem, back to the Noachide commandments um, back in um, Genesis 9. So the question of that state, the status of that particular command, I think, is one that many people wonder about. Should we avoid eating blood puddings for a reason other than their um, <laughs> being disgusting? <laughs> What's blood puddings? Um, What's that? Black pudding. Is yes. that really out of blood? Yeah. Oh, yes, British, British breakfast. <laughs> That's why we avoid it because British food is nasty. <laughs> if you think our food is nasty, just go to the northern parts of Europe, the really northern parts. <laughs> Rotted fish and dried sheep and things like that. <laughs> yeah, is, is it a kind of sausage? Um, not quite. It's no, not quite. <laughs> um, it's generally. I mean, it's related to sausage, but it doesn't look like a sausage. It's generally a, a larger um, circular slice that you'll have. It's usually got, um, it's usually pig's blood with suet and oats, barley, stuff like that. Maybe uh, anybody, have a, anybody have a closing set of comments? <laughs> I've no idea how I can close out what, what, what we've begun. Come back next week and find out what blood pudding is. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We can uh, we can pick up uh, we can pick up things uh, next time. Uh, we we have to do the end of chapter fifteen anyway. So we we left we left questions in the air about this um, about this judgment. We'll we'll come back to this next time and talk further about the uh, the decision of the Jerusalem Council. But I think the effect of it. Once the message is taken back to Antioch, is worth noting, uh, this delegation of men go back with this decree from the church in Jerusalem, from the ecclesia, uh, and the report to the uh, Gentile congregations who rejoice at the encouragement that they receive, that they are now accepted as members without circumcision, without coming under the yoke of the law, uh, and there's a, a knitting together of Jew and Gentile, a common joy in the Gentiles coming in. So, uh, Whatever the specifics of the decision, it's one that the Gentiles recognize as the word of the Holy Spirit and of the apostles to them, and it gives them uh, an encouragement to remain uh, as uh, as Gentiles living in communion with God and with Jews in the one people of God. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.